Whereas, the workers of Limerick have been on strike since Monday, 14th of April, as a protest against the military ban on our city. And whereas, in the meantime, the question has become a national issue, we hereby call upon all workers who can resume work without military permit to do so tomorrow, Friday morning. We further call upon all those workers whose daily occupation requires them to procure military permits to continue in their refusal to accept this sign of subjugation and slavery, pending the decision of a special trade union congress to be called immediately. We also call upon our fellow countrymen and lovers of freedom all over the world to provide the necessary funds to enable us to continue this struggle against military tyranny. Signed, Strike Committee. I'm April Scully. And I'm Kian Prendival, and this is Bottom Dog, the story of the Limerick Soviet, 1919. So we just heard a proclamation put up two weeks into the strike by the Strike Committee, effectively calling off the general strike, but dressing it up in radical language. Kian, what the hell happened? At the end of the last episode, things are going strong, the workers had the run of the city... The army were stuck in their barracks. What happened? What went wrong? Well, that's what we're going to get into in this episode. How the National Trade Union and Labour leaders managed to grab defeat from the jaws of victory and how the revolution was betrayed. into the strike, the strike was 100% solid. The uh, strike committee had set up various subcommittees with uh, commissioners to run the various aspects of the city, transportation, food supplies, propaganda, which was crucial at the time, the production of their own newspaper and so on. There was uh, an indication, a rumour emerged on the the Sunday night that uh, the Chamber of Commerce were considering attempting to break the strike by reopening some of the shops on Monday or Tuesday of the second week. But the strike was so solid that they completely backed off any intent of doing that. So it gives an indication of the power that existed. Okay, so that's what I remember, the power being with the Soviet. Yeah, exactly. That's where we left things off. That clip is from Dominic Hock, a local historian and a member of the Socialist Party, who has a new book coming out on the Soviet too. That was interesting, his point about them having to back off from them breaking the strike. Yeah, that was a new one for me too. It, it really just confirms how strong, after the first week, how strong the workers were and how powerless the bosses were when push came to shove. So what was the point of weakness? When did that dynamic change? Well, I asked Dominic uh, what would have been needed to win and here's what he said. A localised general strike like was taking place in Limerick could not be continued indefinitely. It either had to evolve and develop into a nationwide action or eventually it was going to run out of steam. So I think the crucial element in this was, was the strike going to develop into a nationwide strike? Even if it was only a 24-hour nationwide strike, that would have had an impact. Okay, so they needed solidarity action around the country to keep the momentum going. Yeah, that was a common theme uh, that all those I talked to brought up. Some said they needed a nationwide general strike. Others raised maybe a 24-hour strike or that even if just the rail workers alone had come out, that that would have been enough to pile uh, more pressure on. But one way or another, things within Limerick were fought to a bit of a stalemate. The British Army couldn't crush the workers, but the workers couldn't force them to call off martial law either. So the trade union leaders outside of Limerick who were posed with this question, what were they doing? Liam Cattle explains that one. 
They consulted with the national leadership of the Republican movement, specifically the Dáil, the cabinet of the first Dáil, which would have included, would have been chaired by Eamon de Valera, would have included people like Cahal Brewer, Austin Stack, Richard Mulcahy and, and Michael Collins. And they spent three days in, in consultation with them, basically to suss out what, if any, level of support might be forthcoming uh, from them in the event of the trade unions, in the event of Limerick being escalated. And what emerged from that was that a, a plan would be put forward to evacuate the city of Limerick, to leave it as an empty shell in the hands of the British, and that that in some way would um, engender so much international attention and outrage and so on that the British would be forced to capitulate. So instead of calling solidarity action, they proposed to evacuate the city? Yeah, it seems like that idea in particular came from the heads of Sinn Féin. The broader context at the time was that in January, Sinn Féin MPs had declared themselves to be the alternative legitimate government of Ireland. The national leaders of the unions, in particular, a guy, William O'Brien, uh, um, was very close to them. Uh, and Sinn Féin didn't want a major national strike. So Sinn Féin didn't want to cede any ground to the Labour Party. Is that the point? Yeah, exactly. But why did the Labour leaders go along with that? Yeah, um, I, I, th- I talked to Conor Costick about that. He, he, we'll hear a lot more from him ne- in the next episode. He's the author of a book called Revolution in Ireland, Popular Militancy, 1917 to 1923. But here's what he said about the outlook of the national union leaders at the time. So, you're in charge of a growing union. It's 40,000 probably at this point. It's going to peak at 100,000. And Limerick happens. What do you do? If you behave like a revolutionary, a, a James Conley or a Jim Larkin, you escalate it. If your eye is on the prize of a long-term relationship in a new Irish state where you're acting as an intermediary between Labour and the employers, you're not very comfortable with this kind of militancy, this kind of radicalism. This is, this is stepping outside the boundaries of your existence. This is something frightening and dangerous these hotheads could um they could take you into an area where you could get crushed you could get shot um it's i'm not saying that these people weren't brave it's just that they politically had a conservative pressure on them from the desires to the political goal of becoming a, a part of the establishment of an irish state playing this kind of representative role but not a revolutionary role I think for the union leaders, though, to betray all those workers that stood up against British militarism, that fought inspirationally for a new kind of society, it's pretty treacherous. Yeah, um, but in their own minds, the vision that they would have had for the unions would have been a slow and steady growth in partnership with the new Republican government. And they didn't want to rock the boat too much. So just a creeping reformism, gently, gently, softly, softly trying yeah. to improve things little by little. Exactly. And it's fairly standard reform versus revolution kind of thinking. Then in limiting themselves to reformism, the, the problem was that when a revolutionary situation happened, like in Limerick, they ended up on the wrong side, so to speak. Yeah, they wanted to put the genie back in the bottle. Except that if you concede and don't show force with the workers of Limerick, you're just leaving the workers of Limerick open to be crushed. And what was the impact? I can imagine that was hugely demoralising for the people in Limerick. Yeah, well, when it, when it became clear that the, the promised national solidarity action wasn't going to happen. The vultures that had been circling, biding their time, they swooped in. 
towards the tail end of the Soviet before it finally was called off. The Sinn Féin mayor, Alfonso Samara, coupled with the Bishop of Limerick, uh, Hallinan, worked with the British military to try and negotiate a mediated settlement in terms of the use of the permits and ultimately put pressure on the strike committee to call off the general strike on the Thursday of the second week. So Sinn Féin's role was to try and uh, come to an accommodation and a compromise with the British military to bring the strike to an end. There is no doubt that elements within Sinn Féin and rank and file elements in particular within Sinn Féin would have supported the strike, that they assisted the strike outside the city in terms of procuring food supplies and so on like that. But in terms of the leadership locally and nationally, their objective was to limit the impact of the strike and the potential impact that it could have on the nationalist movement that existed in Ireland at the time. So about 10 days into the strike, the, after the union leaders said that there wouldn't be solidarity action, the Sinn Féin mayor, together with the bishop, put forward a compromise deal. Essentially, it was that the, the workers would call off the strike immediately, and in return, the British would promise to remove martial law in a week's time. That doesn't sound great. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And, and it didn't go down too well with the workers either. It's clear that the transport union membership in Limerick were opposed to abandoning the general strike in Limerick at the time when the Trades Council put a, the strike committee put up proclamations calling on workers who didn't need permits to return to work. The transport union uh, members tore down the proclamation, the posters, and burnt them. And there was a lot of disquiet over what they saw as the strike committee leaders dividing the workers of Limerick between those who could return to work because they didn't need a permit and those who weren't able to return to work because they were refusing to apply for permits. In reality, the whole thing ended in confusion and disagreement. Uh, and that was primarily because of the approach of the leadership of the ILPTUC uh, in terms of dealing with the general strike in Limerick. Dominic makes this point about what worker, some workers saw as the workforce being divided. Can you go into that point a bit? Yeah, so if we go back to the proclamation from the start of the episode, actually what it says, what the local union said, was if you don't need a permit to go back to work, then go to work. So if you didn't need to pass through a checkpoint, basically, you, you were sent back to work. But that meant that the Cleves workers and, and a few others who lived on one side of the river and worked on the other they were basically left out on their own. Okay, so they were throwing some workers under the bus in order to wind things down. Yeah, and a, a couple of days later, in reality, they, they told everybody to go back to work. And how, like, what was the effect on morale? There was a, a, a mix. There was definitely uh, some anger. You've got to remember that for over a week, the workers in Limerick have been told to just hold out a few more days for the national strike. A national strike is coming, a national strike is coming. Right at the start of the strike, uh, the rail workers actually said that they were going to come out on strike, but they were told to hold on, don't come out yet, wait for the national meeting. Okay, so they were waiting for the cavalry to show up and they never did? Exactly, yeah. Um, and perhaps if there had been more Dowlings uh, and they were more organised, they could have gone over the heads of the national leaders and called solidarity action themselves. But, but unfortunately that didn't happen. It just sounds like a major letdown. And like the impact that it has, because I think in Irish history, you know, these failings, these like letdowns, like can have an impact that lasts decades amongst workers as to what's possible. Oh, well, things can't really change. You try things, it doesn't happen. But immediately in Limerick after that event, what impact did that have? Maybe they felt strengthened by, you know, actually look at what we did just shows capacity for what we can do again. But I think it's probably the former. Yeah, well, here's what Liam and Dominic had to say about the impact of the Soviet in the years that followed it. 
The tragedy of it is that I think the result of Limerick, what it, what it did was that from being a position where the Labour movement, both at local level and at national level, was, if you like, in joint ownership of the, the struggle with the Republicans and might even have taken leadership of it, moved into a more subsidiary role so that in later times in the War of Independence, the general strikes that you see, such as the munitions strike and the strike against uh, permits which the British imposed on drivers in the country, were ancillary and subsidiary to the Republican uh, struggle for independence rather than being prime movers in it, as they had been in conscription and up to the point of the Limerick Soviet. While it can be seen as a defeat in terms of the strike being called off, the reality was that it gave confidence to the workers of Limerick and nationally to move into struggle. And we can see from then on a growing combatancy among the workers of Limerick, particularly the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, engaging in strike action. Often the transport union, all the transport union had to do was um, give strike notice for employers to agree to any demands that were being made. And you had from that the development of the workplace Soviets, the occupation of the Knocklong Creamery in 1920, the brewery, uh, flour mills in 1921, uh, the Broadford Soviet, the Castle Connolly Fishery Soviet in December of 1921, and ultimately uh, the large-scale occupation of workplaces uh, during the Munster Soviets from April until August of 1922, when upwards of 130 workplaces were occupied. Okay, so sort of a mixed legacy. On the one hand, you know, more strikes, more Soviets, but on the other hand, just the union leaders nationally accepting that these are just side projects of the unions and not actually drivers of the Irish Revolution. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the Limerick Soviet is a good example in miniature of what took place at this time. There was a, a revolutionary movement from below against both imperialism and capitalism. And, but unfortunately, those in the leadership of the National Trade Union and Labour movement, rather than leading from the front, they were happy to play second fiddle to Sinn Féin. And Dominic Cox summed it up quite well. The problem during this entire period was that there was a constant conflict between labour and nationalism in terms of who was going to lead the struggle for self-determination. Was the struggle for self-determination to be purely confined to the political sphere or was it going to encompass social and economic demands as well? Was it going to be purely about replacing the crown with the harp or was it going to be talking about the development of a socialist revolution through socialist consciousness? And the reality was that the leadership of the ILPTUC had coattailed Sinn Féin and the nationalist leadership since the beginning of 1917. They had done it through their approach to the conscription crisis, and they did it again in terms of their approach to the Limerick Soviet. So from the perspective of the leadership, they didn't want to lead a worker's struggle. They didn't want to place the labour movement in Ireland at the head of the struggle for self-determination because the clear and obvious conclusion of that was that they wouldn't just be leading for independence, they would also have to lead a campaign for social and economic emancipation as well.
That's the end of episode 3. In episode 4, we will put the Limerick Soviet into its wider context as part of the Irish Revolution. We will also tell the fascinating story of the Gary Owen housing crisis, where workers occupied 21 houses in the original Take Back the City. Thanks to Darren Maher for his dramatisations, Dominic Hock, Liam Cahill and Connor Costick for their interviews, and Post Punk Podge for the music throughout the episode. This podcast was hosted by Kean Prendeville and me, April Scully. Sound mixing was done by Marty Walsh. Thanks to Ray Burke of Wired FM for giving us studio time and Danny Scott for assistance throughout production. Finally, your feedback is greatly appreciated. Please leave a review on iTunes or contact Kean on Twitter at KeanPLK or me via info at limericksoviet.ie to let us know what you think of the podcast.